Hello, everybody, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Wherever you may be, this is your host, Bruce Ash, along with co-host... Eb Wilkinson. Welcoming you to a special edition of Inside Track. Thanks for... That's Eb's And here we go again. Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. We've got another action-packed show for you today. After the weekend rundown, we'll talk to well-respected author Neil Thompson about his brand new book, The First Kennedys. After the bottom of the hour, we're going to welcome friend of the show and local historian... David Layton. With the Rideau racing season full swing, David previews his upcoming column about the history of the quarter horse racing in southern Arizona and our iconic racetrack. Before we get rolling, let me remind you that Inside Track is brought to you by our great sponsors, Eric Rudin at Essential Pest Control, who shares your dislike of bugs, vermin, and weeds, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Their junk is your treasure. And, of course, Joy and Allie at Corazon Cabinets. Cabinets for your home you will love. Call them Monday at 488-2266. I also want to welcome and thank my good friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management, for supporting the show. Let Eb help you never have to depend upon socialist security. Don't forget, all of our sponsors are locally owned, family-run businesses, you can depend upon, Eb and I do, so should you. Before we get to our first break and greet First Kennedy's author, Neil Thompson, let's go to the weekend rundown. Vladimir Putin's war continues to rage in Ukraine. Thousands of Ukraine civilians have been murdered in missile and cluster bomb attacks, which have destroyed many apartment blocks and other civilian targets. Many thousands of Russian conscripts have also been killed in fighting by the undermanned and outgunned Ukrainians who are fighting for the future of their country. Russian missiles were fired into Europe's largest nuclear plant in northeast uh, Ukraine and is under Russian control at this time, while closing in on another nuke plant nearby. That's the sound of freedom uh, we hear above, if, if that comes across on our uh, on our microphones. Uh, once these plants are under control, look to their use by Russia as a means to paralyze the government and hurt civilians in Ukraine. Also hit this week, a Russian precision missile attack which knocked out a TV and telephone tower which damaged services in Kiev. Russians have also broken a temporary ceasefire today again, uh, which would have allowed civilian evacuations as they are shelling several cities in the south. Also in the south, the city of Kherson has been captured, and the port city of Odessa, where my own grandmother was born, is under constant pounding by ground and sea-based missile and artillery attacks today. Wall Street Journal headline from today's edition says, Refugees fleeing Ukraine now represent the biggest movement of people in Europe since World War II. They report more than 1.45 million people have left that country, Ukraine, since Russia invaded, with most headed for eastern members of the European Union. Despite constant attacks, we have seen about 1.5 million Ukrainians who've left seeking refuge in Poland, Moldova, Romania, and Hungary, while evacuees from some eastern Ukraine cities who have been assured of safe passage are being shelled by Russian artillery. Inside track listeners can assist Ukraines under attack today. Call the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona at 577-9393 or reach out online at www.jfsa.org. Yep. And this week in America, Rusky TV channel, RT America, ceased production and laid off all of their staff. But in Russia, the government there has forced out social media platforms and Western journalists by threatening to jail them for spreading falsehoods about the so-called special operation in Ukraine. Some have opined that a new Iron Curtain is descending across Russia's Internet. Think about that. In Taiwan, leaders there try to calm fears over Russian invasion of Ukraine, but Taiwanese citizens uh, absolutely worry that their island will be next. Taiwanese officials have been working hard to discourage a catchphrase that has emerged over the last week, 
Today, Ukraine. Tomorrow, Taiwan. Since Russia's attack on Ukraine, the slogan has been repeated in local headlines, discussed in panels, and uttered by jittery citizens worried over the war that will embolden their similarly powered and aggressive neighbor China, which claims Taiwan should be under its rule. This past week in America finally started sanctions against Russian companies. Sanctions are supposed to hurt Russian oligarchs and state-owned Russian companies, but what the talking heads in the White House and on cable channels won't tell you is that the time frame to grab Russian assets and cash is taking way too long, and many of their uber-rich and Russian companies have already safely moved their assets elsewhere. A so-called bipartisan bill, mostly pushed by Republicans to ban Russian crude, was introduced in the U.S. Senate this week seeking to squeeze Putin revenue sources. So far, inexplicably, the Russian, the, the White House continues to oppose these restrictions on Russian oil, which is about 650,000 barrels a week, which feeds the Putin war machine. Earlier today, Putin claimed sanctions are akin to a declaration of war. Today, there are reports by major American news sources that the White House is mulling sanctions on Russian oil imports. Gas prices in some areas in the U.S. have risen to well over $5 a gallon. It's $6 in L.A. Regular gas in Tucson is as high as four fifty in certain locations here in Tucson. Could fears of further inflation caused by skyrocketing energy prices beyond the political minds of Democrats already facing a strong possibility of a midterm election beating? Ah, uh, maybe. Ukrainian President Zelensky's call for a no-fly zone have been rejected by the EU NATO and Western leaders in hopes of limiting the likelihood of violence spreading elsewhere in Europe. This is a tough call because the obvious disadvantage it places Ukraine in against the Russian invaders this past week did see a huge inflow of lethal aid to Ukrainians by NATO countries and America. Yesterday, the Finnish prime minister said serious consideration is being given to making application to join NATO, despite threats by the Russians, this could lead to an expansion of fighting elsewhere in Europe. A poll in Finland showed an overwhelmingly uh, uh, large number of Finns desired joining NATO. More than a week into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russian Air Force has yet to commence large-scale operations. Experts say inactivity in the first few days could have been ascribed to various factors. But continued absence of major air operations now raises serious capability questions. Russia has apparently confirmed three of their top generals have been killed in battle this week. However, there is conflicting information being reported on Russian casualties, troop morale, and logistical problems for the invading Russian army by some. Some of this reporting has come from well-respected national security reporter Jennifer Griffin. She has openly challenged her bosses at Fox and other news channels on relying too much on reports from the Pentagon. Meanwhile, former Fox host Bill O'Reilly singled Griffin out as a gutsy reporter, unafraid to challenge others. Griffin says her efforts are consistent with what she's always tried to do for the last 25 years, both on the air and behind the scenes at Fox News. Also this past week, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham suggested Russian leader Putin should be assassinated. This sort of saber-rattling has no place being suggested by a leading member of the U.S. Senate. Can you imagine what America's reaction might be if a highly visible leader in Russia or China suggested killing an American president? Actually, Democrats have done that when President Trump was in the White House. Just thinking about that a second. Meanwhile, though, there are multiple reliable reports of Russian-sponsored hit teams who are also hunting down President Zelensky. Uh, Long live Zelensky and the strong-willed Ukrainian fighters. Wall Street and other major worldwide stock exchanges suffered more losses this past week, but nowhere close to Russia, whose exchange rate whose uh, stock exchange has been closed since last Monday. The ruble is in free fall, and the major banks there are under serious pressure. In the meantime, Russian inflation is destroying the lives of regular Russian families whose, sam- whose uh, savings have potentially been wiped out.
These stories are not being exaggerated because they're being reported uh, freely uh, by social media. Okay, so enough for bad news. Uh, let's not just focus on on bad news. Uh, a little bit of good news to report. The Arizona Wildcat men's basketball team, which have been picked to place fourth in the conference this season, have won the Pac-12 again. And Tommy Lloyd's team could be a top seed in March Madness later this month. Could Tommy Lloyd be a candidate for National Coach of the Year? Hmm, maybe. Who was that guy who last coached the U of A basketball team? I don't seem to remember his name right now. The Lady Cats lost in the semis of the Women's Pac-12 tournament this week, but begin their quest for a deep run again in the NCAA tournament later next week. Lastly, in some humorous news, which we could all use, sex offender, disgraced movie, movie mogul Harvey Weinstein was busted this week for smuggling milk duds into his L.A. jail cell. And that's the rundown. Mr. Producer, let's take our first break. And here are messages from our great sponsors. When we return, well-respected author Neil Thompson joins us to talk about his brand new book called First Kennedys. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing metal plate and roofing materials as well as new and used steel aluminum and stainless steel to ranchers artists interior designers roofers and do-it-yourselfers just like all the listeners here tucson iron and metal retail is open monday through fridays 8 a.m to 4 30 p.m and saturdays 8 a.m to noon tucson iron and steel retail 701 east 36th street Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, of Wilkinson Wealth Management at 777-1911-WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Track, Bruce is here and Eb's here. As you know, listening to Inside Track, my conservative co-host, the aforementioned Mr. Wilkinson, greatly admires John Kennedy enough to use his historic message from his 1961 inaugural address, Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You, in his advertising for Wilkinson Wealth Management. While many millennials might ask, what is a JFK? Ask any boomer about John F. Kennedy, and they remember his bold call to action his defending of America and the world against Soviet missiles being planted in Cuba, and of course, the American astronauts landing on the moon in 1970 or 1969. But not as many boomers or millennials know much about the early days when the Kennedy, when the Kennedy dynasty was just starting. Our first guest today is Neil Thompson, whose newest book, First Kennedys, has just been released by HarperCollins. Neil joins us for the next several minutes from Boston. Um, he is, uh, l listen to what Pulitzer Prize author John Meacham wrote about First Kennedys. Here is that rare thing, an untold chapter in the Kennedy saga. Neil Thompson has given us a compelling and illuminating book about one of the most important families in our history, a family that represents so much about America then and now. Welcome to the show, Neil Thompson. Bruce, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah. Look forward to talking to you. Yeah, you are writing about the time before the Kennedys became powerful or, or rich. So 
how hard was it for you and others before you to get access to these really, really early Kennedy history notes? And why do you think telling the story today is so doggone important? Yeah, you know, it was a challenge to go back to these early days. So, you know, the story is about essentially JFK's great-grandparents on his father's side coming to America after the great potato famine of the 1840s and arriving in a country that didn't want them, didn't want Irish, didn't want Catholics, didn't want immigrants. Um, And so a lot of the story focuses on these forces, these anti-immigration forces that they were up against, which you don't think of as being how the Kennedys might have started in America. Um, And I think because we've had in recent years some very uh, challenging conversations about immigration and whether we are, in fact, a nation of immigrants, despite our best efforts, I I decided to go back and explore what it was really like for these first Kennedys. Um, But you're right, Bruce, like, Finding the information was a challenge. Uh, the the, the uh, Kennedys that I write about, poor immigrants. Um, you know, JFK's great-grandfather, Patrick, dies of consumption after making it to America. It's not like they left behind their collected papers or, or you know, notes and diaries and that kind of thing. So it was, it was really a, a bit of a, um, you know, trying to unlock the mystery of the early Kennedys in terms of how I conducted my research. So, um, Neil... Talk about where were the P.J. Kennedy papers at and how hard was it to get your hands on them? And were they just released or had they been out there for a while, but sort of obscurely sitting in a box somewhere in the basement at at the library? Tell us about that. Bruce, I had dreams about that box and being able to like, just access it myself. Yeah, um, these P.J. Kennedy papers are co- the collected papers of JFK's, uh, one of his two grandfathers, P.J. Kennedy, who was a saloon keeper who became a politician in the 1880s and 90s and into the early 1900s. Super fascinating guy, hasn't really been uh, written about as much as other members of the Kennedy family. Um, and these uh, his collected papers have been at the JFK Library probably for a long time, but they were publicly sort of listed on the JFK Library's website back in 2016 or 17. And it was soon after that that I sort of refocused my attentions on this story. It's something I had been interested in for many years, but couldn't exactly find a way in until I realized that these P.J. Kennedy papers were available or as they put it on their website, soon to be available. They were closed to the public back in 2017 because they were still processing them. These are old onion skin pages, like copies of letters and business documents, and they had to be treated very carefully and scanned and digitized in a very specialized way. So I was initially patient, waiting for them to do that work, and then got a little bit more pushy. Um, and they were gracious about it at the library, but I would I would nudge them every six months and say, hey, how are those papers coming along? When can I get a look? Um, and by 2019, I was pretty far along in this book and really, really wanted to fill some gaps that I thought the P.J. Kennedy papers could fill. And I had some time, um, but then COVID hits and the processing of those papers grinds to a halt. Thankfully, to the library's credit, they did finish processing most, but not all of them. And I got this wonderful email from the chief archivist there one day saying, you know, good news, papers are mostly done, and here's the link. And, you know, I instantly had access to hundreds of pages that really opened up sort of the the, the locked box of who this guy P.J. Kennedy was, who his mother was, what their life was like. Uh, It really made a big difference for this book. Neil, my co-host, Eb Wilkinson. Hey, Neil, Eb here. Tell the listeners about Bridget Murphy, who is thought of as being the previously unknown hero and matriarch of the family. Who was she? Yeah, she's this just wonderful overlooked character, um, and I'm glad we're going to talk about her for a little bit. Bridget Murphy um, is JFK's uh, great-grandmother on his uh, father's side. She came from Ireland. She was the first person to leave her her family. She grew up on a small farm, 
poor, like many uh, rural Irish did at that time. When the potato famine hit and the potato crops across the island were wiped out and people were starving or or fleeing uh, to other countries, jumping on coffin ships as these uh, boats were known, um, uh, that's what Bridget decided to do, to get out. Um, And I think she's a remarkable character because she represented this wave of uh, Irish women who emigrated from Ireland at this tragic time um, and made their way to America, oftentimes alone. Um, the, the number of Irish women uh, coming to America outnumbered the men at this time. They were just, I think, risk takers and, and bold and wanted to start a new life for themselves. And that's what Bridget Murphy did. She comes to Boston in 1848. She arrives pretty much penniless. Had a couple cousins that she knew who were coming to America around the same time and connected with them, um, and then starts at the bottom of, of, of all rungs on the economic ladder. She works as a maid in, in Boston for many years. Um, but her story, her ascent from maid later to hairdresser and later to grocery shop owner and building owner and landlord, um, she's just a remarkable character. And I think a lot of what you see, a lot of the traits you see uh, appear in that family later on, grit, tenacity, resilience, um, service to community, all tie back to Bridget Murphy. Well, you wrote about her losing her husband to TB at the age of 35 and raising four kids alone in the immigrant slums of East Boston. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, so she comes to America, 1848, hopeful, but you know, probably scared. She's she's coming to a, a city that really didn't want uh, her kind, and very quickly confronted the forces of the you know the know nothing party and the anti-immigrant uh, rabble rousers who would parade through her neighborhood, um, you know, shouting for the Irish to go back home and uh, shouting to keep them out and enact laws to keep the Irish out of pol- politics and prevent them from voting and these kinds of things. So she was. You know, it wasn't a very uh, open arm welcome, despite our sense of America as a uh, as a place that opens its arms to refugees like Bridget. Um, but yeah, you're right. So she 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 finally gets settled in. Uh, she's living in East Boston. Um, uh, they have uh, they together. She and Patrick have her uh, first son, John, who dies at 20 months old. They can't even bury John in the city of Boston because there are laws to prevent Catholics from being buried in city soil. So they bury John F. Kennedy, uh, their first son, uh, west in Cambridge. Then uh, a couple years later, Patrick, her husband, dies, leaving her with four kids alone, including her infant son, PJ. Um, And she goes back to work as a maid and little by little starts to find a way to not just keep her family intact, but hopefully move up a notch. And that's what she does. So she witnesses these riots in her neighborhood. How does that experience echo through the Kennedy lineage? You know, I think the Kennedys, if you think of the 20th century Kennedys, um, they're different, they have different relationships to their past and to their Irish heritage. Um, so let's take Joe Kennedy, JFK, and RFK's father. He wanted nothing to do with um, Ireland, uh, the, the poverty that his uh, parents and grandparents came from. He wanted to be known as American. He wanted to become powerful and wealthy and successful um, and, and, and put behind memories of that difficult period. JFK, I think, and some and other members of the family sort of gravitated to this sense that we came from a hard uh, uh, past. You know, our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents um, were poor and discriminated against, and I think that echoes throughout you know, uh, arms of that family tree. And, and, and I think you see it reflected in how they treat others, either as politicians or um, as community leaders or, or these kinds of things. I think they, they developed a, a caringness and empathy uh, for those who have less. And I think some of that goes back to the days when they, the, the Irish were the oppressed class of America. Um, hey, I want to thank you for, for being with us. We're, the interview is not, not over yet, but I just want to thank you because uh, um, our listeners know we get a, a, most of our author guests from me reading the uh, book reviews in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, there's a compliment for you and, and, for, and for your publicist at uh, HarperCollins. Uh, we have more luck uh, attracting top authors than probably a show like ours deserves. 
but they're but these bookings are hard to get. And uh, Holly Rice, who works at Harper and, and represents you, she's been extraordinarily helpful and, and efficient bringing you to the show. And, and it, it's paying off here because your, your, your story here is, is fabulous. So, uh, hey, PJ, you know, he, he uh, develops, you know, his connections. He gets involved in politics. Um, he was part of, um, let's see if I can find it. He was part of something called the Board of Strategy. Now, I've, I've been a Kennedy sort of studier for years and years because, you know, as a, as a young boy, I mean, he was, you know, he was kind of everybody's hero my age. Tell us about the Board of Strategy. Yeah, I think PJ is another remarkable character, and I should say the book is kind of divided in, in two parts. The first part tells the story of Bridget coming to America and raising her family um, and finally you know, achieving some semblance of success by running her own grocery store. Um, and then the second uh, half of the book takes up with her, uh, her surviving son, PJ, and his troubled early years, but then his... Uh, slow-growing success as a saloon keeper, and then he gets into politics. And what I love about his story is that it really tells the story of, of Irish and Democratic politics politicians in Boston sort of uh, establishing themselves as as a, a, a force in that city that was previously very uh, Republican and and uh, Brahmin controlled. You know, a lot of the old school families ran that city. But then you get into the late 1800s when these first generation Irish kids are getting into politics, which they found was sort of their way to uh, have some agency and some some control over the laws that previously had been lined up against them in many ways. So PJ, um, along with JFK's other grandfather, Honey Fitz, John Fitzgerald, they're part of this first wave of Irish Democratic politicians. Um, PJ serves seven years in the Massachusetts State House. He serves in various appointed roles. Um, and then he reaches this sort of elder statesman uh, uh, position and um, People come to him for advice and help, um, and he becomes part of this sort of secretive board of strategy. A handful of uh, strong uh, ward leaders, all Irish Democrats, uh, I think all of them were sons of Irish immigrants. Uh, Honey Fitz served on this board for a while. You know, it was an informal board, and it was, it was uh, under the radar for years until the Boston Globe did an expose and kind of revealed that the, the members of this board were the ones who were pulling the strings. They were deciding who was going to get uh, appointed for a city job or run for certain offices, which candidates would get the support of the board of strategy. Hugely influential and powerful at the time. And, uh, and, and you know, who, know, who today knows about P.J. Kennedy, even though, you know, he was the first Kennedy elected to public office and had a deep, deep impact on the rise of, uh, of Irish Democrats in his day. So we, can, we only have a couple more minutes. Um, the, the relationship between P.J. And, and Honey Fitz, uh, Fitzgerald, was uh, fraught, as, as you describe it. Yeah. Um, you also wrote that PJ considered Honey Fitz an insufferable buffoon. And then there's this marriage between uh, Joe Kennedy and Roe Fitzgerald. Was that a marriage made in heaven or hell? <laughs> <laughs> Well put. Yeah, I mean, their, their parents, PJ and Honey Fitz, didn't want their kids to marry. They wanted to keep them apart and tried to, um, but but they failed. And I think it's remarkable that, you know, you've got PJ and Honey Fitz as these two scrappy, you know, not always friendly with each other politicians, but they needed each other and they relied on each other. They were sort of, I, th I think they were more like brothers who fought um, rather than enemies. Um, and then you see their kids marrying and we get the family that we've got today. I think it's a remarkable uh, uh, trajectory for this family coming from literally nothing to what we know of, uh, of today. And I got to add one thing. I know we're tight on time, but my wife and I visited Tucson earlier this year yeah. to get away from Seattle's rain and cold. Loved your city and uh, stayed at the Arizona Inn and learned what a about beautiful JFK. place. It's great. And the, the guy there told me about JFK staying there yep. once and leaving his swim trunks behind. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story I don't even want to get to. Uh, <laughs> hey, well, Neil, we're running out of time, and I am so sorry for that. Uh, come back to Tucson, sit in on the show. Hey, thanks for joining us. Best of luck with you on your new book, First Kennedys. Tell us one more time where to get it and how to get it. 
Yeah, uh, thank you for speaking with me. I loved it. Great conversation, and I hope to be back. Uh, folks can stop at my website, probably a good first stop. It's neilthompson.com, N-E-A-L. Links to different uh, places where you can buy the book, some mini-reviews, some uh, other sort of updates on what's been happening with the book and my book tour. So uh, that's a good place to stop, and folks can follow me on the, you know social channels and whatnot and, and drop me a line. Neil, thanks so much. Mr. Producer, let's take our traditional overdue bottom-of-the-hour break. When we return, we'll be celebrating the history of Rito Downs and the quarter horse racing here in southern Arizona. You're listening to Inside Track. I promise you, we'll be right back. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911-WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. We've got another action-paced show for you. After the weekend rundown, we'll talk... Oh, hang on. Where are we at? I'm on the wrong place, Bruce. Yes, you are. Listen, welcome back to Inside Track. I have no idea where my notes are, but look, we're sitting here with the uh, uh, David Layton, great author, talking about Rito Racetrack. David. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So are you a horse racing fan yourself? Um, are you going to uh, talk about Rito Downs and, and, and the history and, and quarter horse racing? Are, are, you a, are you a horse racing fan? I mean, I do watch them on occasion. I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan, though. No. Um, I, I do watch horse racing sometimes on TV and stuff like that, and I'll be going to the uh, Rito Downs tomorrow uh, to watch some. So, um, Well, we know, we know that Jay Wells, who is, who is hanging on the line, Tom, is, is Jay with us? Uh, we know that Jay is a big quarter horse fan. Jay, thanks very much for agreeing uh, to be on the show today with uh, David. Well, happy to be here. And I know from from uh, reading and talking with David how influential you have been keeping Rito Racetrack alive and quarter horse racing uh, here in southern Arizona alive. Well, I'm honored you'd say that. I was one of many, many people, but... Uh, but an important uh, you one. You know, I... I, I, yeah, I, when I first got uh, the position, I said it was akin to someone bringing together an Indian tribe and introducing their new chief. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, I've got so a there quest- was a lot learning curve. I've got a question for you. Over the years, we hear a lot about quarter horse racing, but what the hell is it? Well, uh, most folks are familiar with the Kentucky Derby, and that's thoroughbred racing, where they're basically uh, the analogy is it would be like a long distance running in the in a marathon or or, something, or, or a longer distance. The uh, quarter horse racing are sprinters, so they're like drag racing or the hundred meter dash in the Olympics. And uh, these horses are amazing, and they can literally get to about fifty miles an hour in three strides out of the gate. Uh, so riding a riding a quarter horse as opposed to a thoroughbred are two completely different animals. 
So where did this horse racing originate from? Well, horse racing has been around as long as men have had horses. I think that well, the quarter horse kind of, racing yeah. in particular. Oh, the quarter horse. Well, quarter horse racing actually is older than thoroughbred racing, and it got started uh, back on the East Coast uh, when in the pre-colonial days. And they literally would take um, the horses that they had, a lot of which were the uh, feral uh, Spanish barbs that had been left over by the conquistadors that had kind of gone feral in the woods. And they would literally, uh, because it was so wooded back in the East Coast, they couldn't, uh, you know, cut down the timber to do a big round track. So what they would do is just literally run them down the streets of the little towns. And uh, the quarter mile is the, dis- uh, the distance. And they were actually called the famous American, uh, excuse me, the famous celebrated American quarter mile running horse. Mm. And that predates thoroughbred racing, which was in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Mm. So it's been around for a long, long time. Um, with the popularity of thoroughbred racing coming east, uh, of course, the quarter horses moved west. They were big in Texas. Uh, and they really didn't start their racing aspect until uh, literally some gentlemen in Tucson that David's researching uh, uh, got it going in a scientific way, meaning before that it was just simply on the weekend cowboy barbecue, a cowboy that rode the horse all week would race against his. But these guys literally turned it into a, a an organized sport, uh, founded the rules and established, um, you know, what we now recognize as, as quarter horse racing. So, David, talk about Jay Rukin Jelks, who was originally from Woodruff County, Arkansas, came to the University of Arizona to study uh, animal husbandry in 1922. He's really the guy who was kind of at the he was the founder of this whole thing here in southern Arizona, wasn't he? Correct, yeah. Rukin Jeltz um, actually came to Tucson about 1920, uh, as you said, to attend uh, the University of Arizona and end up graduating uh, with a degree in animal husbandry. Um, he actually, about 1940, uh, bought the property uh, about on River Road and First Avenue, and what he did... So and that's, and that's where Rito is still right on now. a part of that, right? Right. First Avenue um, and River Road is where Rito Downs is at at this point. Uh, in 1940, 1941, around that time, he actually uh, built a personal track. It was actually his own personal track that he would uh, run his horses. And he had... Was he a, doing stud work there as well? Right. It was a stud farm. Uh, he was breeding uh, top-notch horses and stuff like that. And so it started there, and they actually were racing at another track uh, called the Multaqua Track over on Savino Canyon Road uh, and the uh, wash over in that area. Um, So is that where the Vactor Ranch was close by there? The famous uh, Vactor Ranch where the um, Big Boot is at on Sabino Canyon Road was that area where the Multaqua track was at. The tack room. The tack room was there originally, or there at one point, I should say. So they're racing there at one point, and then the owner of there, uh, Bob Lockheed, decided to sell his track uh, during the war. And so they had to move the racing someplace. And since uh, Jelks had already set up his personal train track, they did some slight modifications, added a chute to it, and um, a chute also known as a straightaway. And um, they started racing there. It was originally intended only to be temporary. Uh, They did an interview with uh, Melville Haskell, who was one of the founders of organized uh, racing in Tucson. And he states in an interview with the Tucson Citizen newspaper that this was just intended to be temporary during the war and they were going to look for some other place, you know, bigger, more room and stuff like that. But as you can see, it's still there in in 2022. So, Jay, uh, physically, is there, what differences are there from a quarter horse, racing horse, Versus a thoroughbred, you know, who's going to do a mile or a mile and a quarter, you know, a longer kind of races. I mean, is there physically a difference between those two kinds of horses? So, well, there there are lots of differences uh, uh, to the trained eye. And, you know, a thoroughbred is required to trace uh, their paternal lineage back to three stud sires, uh, from 1690 to 1710. Mm. And so every thoroughbred that ever run is, is literally a hot-blooded animal that has, uh, in fact, I think right now about 80% of the thoroughbreds tracers back to one of those three sires. So that's that's one thing. But the quarter horses, uh, you know, it, when, when uh, Jelks and Haskell uh, first started racing them, 
they didn't care if it was a zebra, a mule, or a thoroughbred, or a quarter horse. <laughs> uh, it was it was who could run the uh, quarter mile the fastest. In fact, in fact, their slogan was a uh, an ounce of speed is worth a pound of hot air, <laughs> which, <laughs> which kind of shows you know the the, the betting man aspect of it. Um, so the the thoroughbreds are leaner. They have what's called more last, meaning that they can run longer distances. A quarter horse is made for burst of speed. Uh, I've heard several theories about them, but one that I have adopted just because it sounds great <laughs> is that, uh, you know, these were feral uh, uh, Spanish barbs. And if the horse couldn't get from a, uh, away from a panther uh, in the woods of the Appalachians, they got eaten. And so it was the ones with the big asses and the springing legs that got away, and that's what their their singular attribute is. They literally get out of the gate, uh, and as I said earlier, they're they're at 50 miles an hour in three strides. So the thoroughbred is leaner, uh, like a long-distance runner, and the uh, quarter horse is more muscular, like you would expect in a 100-meter sprinter. So being a a lifelong Tucsonan, Haskell, the name Haskell has sort of presence here, was um, Mel Haskell of Haskell Linen? You know, have the big linen company here in town for years, or is that a different uh, different outfit? I, I don't know that. David, do you do you know? Have you done any research on on Haskell's uh, family? Um, the research I've done, I, I'm aware of the Haskell Linens and, and the su- several brothers um, they had, or at least two brothers. I don't think Melville Haskell was related to mm. the family that owned Haskell I, Linens. Yeah. I think I think that both Haskell and uh, Jelks were were basically uh, Eastern gentlemen that resettled here because of tuberculosis. Uh, and, and so they, I, I've never heard that Jelks worked a day in his life, <laughs> other than with his horses. But that being said, uh, you know they they came together, and and uh, the Jelks family, of course, uh, is, was was a stable in in, uh, in Arizona for years and years. So so Rito. Uh, uh, now, you know, in, in 1943, I guess, uh, is when it opened up to the public. Correct. Um, th- it wasn't just the, the start of organized quarter horse racing. It also, I understand, was the originator of the photo finish. David, uh, Jay, talk about that. Because that's, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing in, in horse racing, right? Well, they, 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 there had been uh, photo cameras. Uh, in fact, Del Mar uh, was the first track that actually put a motion picture camera uh, in, the, in the 30s on the track. Uh, and they would basically develop the film and then decide, you know, who came across first. But in quarter horse racing, the reason that the photo finish cameras, all photos cameras are now, are synced to a timer is uh, you, in, in quarter horse racing, you run in heats. So you could have the top five horses out of one heat be moved on to the finals because another heat was slower. Do you follow me? Yeah. Um, and so they just had like to swimming or track. Yeah, and they actually somehow got a, a high speed electronic cam, uh, uh, camera and uh, clock that they tied to so that that camera, as it was uh, filming the finish line activity, was also filming the timing on the clock. And then, therefore, they could say not only who came across first, but what that time was. Because, again, the third or fourth or fifth place uh, uh, horse in that particular heat might be faster than horses in the other's heat. The, the, the reason that they did this is because the human eye and the judges just couldn't figure out who crossed the line first, even that in a photo finish. So they, that's how it got, got started. And so uh, Rito is recognized as the birthplace of the modern photo finish camera used everywhere, as well as a lot of other uh, safety measures. So uh, there's another character that I had some contact with as, as a young man here in Tucson growing up, uh, Rulon Goodman. Uh, he had the Goodman's um, uh, grocery stores in Tucson, and uh, he, he was very active in quarter horse racing in the 1950s and 60s. Does that name ring a bell? I, I haven't. Yep. I, talk about Rulon. Well, I don't know a lot about Rulon. I know that he was an owner-manager of the track for years and years, was very uh, well-respected. You know, uh, Rito had sort of a uh, roller coaster history. It was hot and cold. Uh, there was a, a, a point where uh, literally the, the United States Attorney General got involved uh, because the track had been sold to a, to a, a shill uh, that was really funding for the mob. 
and I think this is great knows. history. <laughs> yeah, the, I think everybody knows that Tucson's got a, a bit of a bit of mob history from back in the day, uh-huh. and uh, and so that got involved. So it, it we had its ups and downs. It then was closed uh, in the seventies, and and actually donated uh, to the county uh, for perpetual racetrack. And then at such time that they they actually did a multi-use facility, uh, which was something that, that our foundation was created to do, was to facilitate that so that it was fair for all parties. We bought in the farmer's market, et cetera. But anyway, Rito has changed as Tucson's changed, and, and that's a good thing. So uh, in terms of the, the, the uh, horses that have raced there, um, any of these horses or jockeys gone on to sort of higher stakes and, and more success elsewhere? Well, I'll let David address the number of early world champions that came out of the Jelk Stable because he has uh, really impressed me with, with his diligence on, on doing the research. David, tell him a little bit about Shoe Fly and Heart Twist, Pick and String, etc. Yeah, there was in the early days of the Rito track, um, and even actually at Multaqua, because it actually started in 1941, the world champion quarter horse mile was held in Tucson. Hmm. Uh, so the the horse that uh, won that was considered the world champion quarter horse or world champion quarter running horse uh, in the nation. Um, so Tucson was the center, uh, the capital quarter horse racing uh, in, in, the, in the country. So the ones that won here, um, like Queenie, for example, uh, that was one of uh, uh, Jay Rook and Jelk's horses was Queenie. Uh, she won in 1945. Uh, you've got horses like Clabber. He was the first one to win in Tucson 1941 at the Multaqua track on Sabino Canyon Road. Um, God, you a bunch of them. Shoe fly. Now, one of the interesting things my research has shown, and, and this still has to be verified, but according to the American Quarter Horse Association, um, there are three horses that have won the Quarter Horse uh, mile championship three times. So there's three winners that won three times. My research shows that Shoefly uh, won in the championship race four times. Um, so that's something I'm going to have to verify with the American Quarter Horse Association in Amarillo, Texas. But that might alter the history of uh, the quarter horse if it's if my research is accurate and Shoefly actually won four times. So that that's actually kind of a big deal. That's sort of the Kentucky Derby, if you will, of the quarter horse racing. Yeah, which was held in Tucson for for about a decade, maybe a well, little. Tucson bit. was Tucson was recognized as literally the home and hub of all quarter horse racing, and at, during the the forties and fifties, there were quarter horse dedicated tracks uh, stretching from Dallas to Denver to San Francisco. Um, Albuquerque. I mean, it was all over. It was a much, much bigger deal. Uh, and then it sort of faded a little while in the 80s. And then, of course, with Rio Dosa and, and over in New Mexico, et cetera, you know, they're now million-dollar races. So they've really come into their own in the modern age. And um, thanks to the efforts of these gentle, Tucson gentlemen that got it started so many years ago. So this is Eb. Basically, little old Tucson is basically the birthplace of what is now considered the quarter horse racing throughout. Absolutely. And Rito's uh, recognized as the birthplace of, of quarter horse racing. Correct. That, that's one of the things Tucson's known for. Um, so the foundations formed after there's sort of a, a demise of, of uh, quarter horse racing here in the Tucson area. Um, and it's this, it's this relationship between Pima County and the operators of Rito. Um, Jay, tell us about that. Uh, you know, we hear uh, on the news, on some talk shows, you know, that there is a very contentious relationship, you know, that the county wants to get rid of horse racing. And, and now, you know, uh, various protesters, not so much I understand at, at Rito Downs, but also I've been to Del Mar several times and they're always out there in force. Talk about all of the things that kind of go into today's Rito and how it, the racetrack, uh, sort of sits in the community. 
Well, I, you know, when we the foundation was started, basically because there had been plans with the county to bulldoze uh, Rook and Jelk's uh, house, yeah. and it's uh, you know it's it's significant not only because of the horse racing, but but for the architecture as well. So it's now on the National Register of Historic Places, which happened in, in 2012, and uh, and and so there was a giant uh, loggerhead between the youth soccer interests and the horsemen at the time that I got involved with the track. And I actually came into it uh, trying to save the historic home of Rook and Jelks and not necessarily ever dreaming I'd get involved with the horse racing itself. But we quickly realized that part of the problem was is that the two of them were talking uh, to one another. The horsemen wanted to be left alone. The soccer folks wanted the whole place torn down and be a big tournament facility. And, uh, and so when I saw the Jelks house, uh, as an architectural jewel, I'm, I'm a preservation architect and, and practiced for, for many years back in, in Tennessee. But, uh, but anyway, I saw it, and it was as built home, uh, historically significant. And what that did was put a third leg on the stool and started diluting the conversation because you brought in the historic significance. It wasn't just about the horse racing. It wasn't just about youth soccer, but literally uh, that Rito Park uh, is for all of us. And uh, coincidentally, I was uh, chairman of the nonprofit that runs the farmers markets, and we had outgrown St. Phillips Plaza, so we went to the county first and proposed that they move the farmers market over there. So that now, without getting into too many details about that, it really is a multi-use facility. We're now trying to. I think we have earned. Uh, we've made a peace with the soccer field folks, and they now have that facility uh, down in, near Keno. Right. Um, and we and we uh, have also started conversations about the rehabilitation of of Rito. That we're, we're now financially sound. Uh, one of the things that kind of was the tipping point was this year the state um, basically granted because of the sports book settlements. They granted horse racing some $52 million to be allotted uh, over the next three years. And and uh, while the smaller portion is going to go to Rito, it's still a big portion for us, as little track that we are. So that's kind of put us in, a, in the light uh, of the county. And we've done a lot of significant things. Our equine wellness program, we've had some uh, recent accidents on the track. But we, uh, we're we taking steps to really sort of uh, make Rito just – a uh, place that everybody wants to come, and any track in the com- uh, country is envious of our crowd. I mean, we there were 4,000 people there on opening weekend, um, and it, it is just one of those little melting pots. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story, but when I first decided, could I, this is something I should get involved real, with. Real quick, real, real quick. Yeah. We've got a minute and a Plenty. half. Well, I had a, a couple that had just got off the plane from Minnesota on the right of me and a Mexican family that didn't speak any Spanish, and I do, on, on, on the other side. And when the race went off, one's going, say, 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 and the other's going, six, six, six. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, wait a minute. This is where millionaires meet the, you know, the, the, the common man, and it is just fabulous, and the excitement uh, is just, you know, precious. Well, uh, Jay, uh, a, a great opportunity for for us to hear uh, more about uh, the history and what's going on at Rito today with the foundation. David, uh, when do you think your article is going to hit the Arizona Daily Star? Is it later this month or next? Uh, I mean, it's possible it could come out next month. Uh, Jay and I were talking about possibly putting an article in like a Quarter Horse magazine as well or something like that. So kind of up in the air at this point. Um, So we'll see what happens. Well, thank you both for for all the work that you do. Uh, David, for being kind of our local chronicler and and historian. And Jay, for the work that you're doing with the foundation. It would just be a shame to lose this part of Tucson's history and and so on. Uh, Eb and I hope you've enjoyed the show today and learned something uh, new from us. Uh, with our chats with Neil Thompson and uh, and also David Layton and Jay Wells. Our, our show is available on podcasts, on uh, Apple Podcasts. Until next week when we have GOP congressional candidate Eli Crane and friend of the show, author, columnist Jeff Shesaw. This is Bruce Ash And Ed Wilkinson. Thanking you for joining us today. Pray for Ukraine and wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon.